0: Hi, this is Adina here with today's episode of Your Way to Brilliant, podcast show of Courage to be Curious. And this year we are journeying through the Yamas and the Niyamas, yoga's ethical um, practices. And we it is basically principles for living. And in the month of May, we are talking about the principle of Brahmacharya. And Brahmacharya is probably one of the more complex Yamas and has been interpreted a number of different ways. In Deborah Adele's book that we've been using, she refers to it as non-excess. It has been referred to um, as abstinence or celibacy in the past. Um, One of the more popular translations or literal meaning, I guess, of Brahmacharya is walking with God. And in my newsletter last week, I put forward the um, description, which I really liked, called the right use of energy. So however it is you want to understand that um, the one thing I will say is that most everybody agrees that abstinence or celibacy, that this, the Brahmacharya does not refer to sexual activity or is not limited to the reference to sexual activity and is not specifically about that, but is more about how we walk with God in the world or how we show up in relationship to the sacredness of life and the world. And so I, And when I think about the right use of energy, one of the ways to walk with God, one of the ways to be in the sacredness of life is to think about where is my energy being directed at this moment? So what use am I making of the energy that I have right now? And it's not always easy to direct that, but there's lots of things that we can do to be reminded or returned back to that state of holiness, to brahmacharya, to walking with God, to thinking about is the use of my energy right now intentional? Is it mindless? Is it frivolous? Is it unconscious? Is it driven by some other kind of instinct? Or is it truly intentional? And so we're going to take off and launch our exploration of this right use of energy and thinking about this notion of excess as a contrast to the right use of energy. So it's one way to think about the opposite of right use of energy is that instead of looking at just the right amount of energy towards something or you know, things in moderation, things in just the right amount, our tendency to go toward excess. So that's the exploration for this week. And when we think about excess, it can be excess of anything. We can have a tendency toward the excess of work. We can have an end tendency toward the excess of eating and food, towards sex, towards drugs toward our daily chai or four cups of coffee or six diet cokes or as i you know i'm going through the cycle of things that either i myself or people that i know can indulge in perhaps the excess of an excess of sleep an excess of feeling sad um so we can go toward these places of excess and There's all kinds of reasons, you know, physiologically and in the brain science, why we can tend toward excess. Um, As we've talked about in the past, the brain will build a neural pathway for something. So if I pass my favorite Starbucks and I get my favorite chai, and if I pass that favorite Starbucks a few more times and each time go in and get my chai, it almost becomes like a habit until suddenly I realize that, you know, the the chai, Uh, the, the Starbucks and the chai are dictating what happens rather than me because my stopping there, my buying the chai is no longer an intentional act. It's an act of habit to the point where it can almost become an act of excess. And having been guilty of, you know, accessing on chais in the past, you know, I can literally feel when I've had to come back off of it, the, um, the addiction to the sugar, to the taste, all of those things that was just keeping me going toward it. So there's certainly a biological and physiological reason why we can tend toward the excess of something because once our brain defines a pathway to something and it activates a pleasure center um, of some kind, then we want more of that pleasuring and we go toward it and we're wired to go toward those kinds of things. And if we go toward things that are good for us and the amount that we're toward them is good for us, then great, we're not in excess. Um, but we have found that very often, and if we look honestly at ourselves, like we almost all excess on something. You can even excess, as I've talked about before, on spirituality. I'm suddenly finding myself in that place. Like, am I on ODing on just reading and, and thinking and talking about everything spiritual? Like, I got to move myself out of that. I can get into those places too so um you know this idea of excess and as i was preparing for this podcast one of i you know a few different sources just came in at the same time to um i guess maturing or adding to my thinking about this idea of excess and how we get to this and you know what role it plays what we can learn from it and so this quote that um, was written by Mary Frances Kennedy Fisher, who was basically a food writer, um, written a lot of books about our relationship to food. And she says, because food is one of the things that um, culturally we can access a lot on, um, she writes, it seems to me that our three basic needs for food and security and love are so mixed and mingled and entwined with each other, that we cannot straightly think of one without the other. So this idea that our relationship to food, and I want to say like I could, inter- I could interchange that with almost anything else on my list, with sex, with um, alcohol, with drugs, with work. I, could, I feel like I could interchange almost any of the excesses into that, but that our need for food or any of these things, And security and love are so mixed and mingled and entwined that we cannot straightly think of one without the other. And we simply pick our poison, right? So this idea that the things that we, you know, partake of, those chais, the glass of wine, the beer, the, you know, frequent sexual acts and, or the frequency to stay at work and all those things are typically more than about just the thing itself you know, we've been talking about this for years on this show, right? It's more than just about the thing itself, that it's intertwined with other things that are really going on with us. And if we get curious, if we take that moment to pause, be a little courageous and step back and get curious, this question of, well, how is that, you know, daily cup of coffee or daily chai intertwined with other emotional needs that I have, the need for security or the need to feel loved? Where is it taking the place or filling a gap of something that might be missing? Where is it You know, fulfilling a need that might not be met in some other ways? Um, another book I've been listening to recently called, again, On the Food Thing. Yeah, yeah. Y'all know this is one of my things. One of, one of my areas of working through and processing through is food. So I've been listening to a book called Women, Food, and God. And in this, um, Janine Roth, who has been running food retreats, for women who've been struggling with their relationship with food for most of their lives. Um, but she really takes the women who come to her retreat through a process of understanding why it is, where, and how it is that they came to be in the relationship that they are in with food. You know, what part of them got stuck someplace, unloved, feeling unsecure, insecure feeling, you know, something where there was a lacking, really um, intrinsic need that then food started to substitute for. And again, my sense is we could substitute whatever our, you know, passion of poison is, whether it's food or drink or alcohol, you know, or work or whatever it is, what is it replacing? What if we're, if we're finding ourselves doing something in great excess So the third resource was actually this TED Talk that I recently listened to um, called Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. And the TED Talk was by award-winning journalist, Johan Hari, and um, went to study um, addiction and the ways that some different countries were dealing with it. And I might be wrong, so hopefully not quote me. I'm going from memory here. But I think it was Portugal that he went to that had been having a terrible problem with addiction um, and having a problem with people continually being incarcerated and a very uh, large population of people in jail and recidivism and people in rehab institutions. And all of the strategies, sort of the ones that we typically use in this country, um, were not working to curb it. So punishing people wasn't curbing it, and just having more, you know, institutions and things like that weren't cur- curbing it. And what they found was they got together a group of, uh, you know, psychologists and and um, scientists and neuroscientists and social social workers, and really said, you know, we need another we need another strategy here. We need another policy. And basically, what they ended up doing was that when people would be released, whether it was from prison or from rehab, that they put a lot more resources into what happened to that person on the other side you know, making them hireable instead of stigmatized where it would be more difficult for them to get a job, of seeing that they were integrated into a community, of giving them social-emotional supports on the other side. But pretty much, you know, the crux of it was making sure that they were accepted back into society, that they could find a place rather than being so shamed and stigmatized that they were going to continually feel on the outside. And what they found was that as they um, executed this policy, over time, they saw a dramatic drop in the amount of repeat occurrences. Whether that was, you know, illegal um, behaviors or behaviors that landed in rehab facilities, that people once they came out and were able to be reintegrated, able to be accepted, able to be brought into community, that even though you know alcohol or the drugs, you know, could have been accessible because look, they're always accessible. That there wasn't the same need to go and do that because there was something else on the other side that was filling those unmet needs and was giving them something more intrinsically um, comforting than what the drugs were had been giving them. So this idea of excess, you know, so where am I going with this? Is basically have us think about this idea of non-excess or the flip side of it, the right use of energy. Is gives us the invitation to look at where might we be accessing on something, where might be we be overindulging as benign as the thing like my chai's were, you know, seemed to be, and inviting us to look at, you know, why am I accessing there? Has it simply become a habit? And if it's become a habit, is it habit serving me well? Or is it producing something? Um, like for me, it was, you know, too much of the wrong kinds of, you know, gut bacteria, because of all the sugars and everything, and I you needed to go on a cleanse in order to, to kind of smash that habit. Or, as it was also tied to, is it part of something else that feels lacking or missing? And what other supports can we use to get that Um, Again, if it's alcohol, if it's drugs, if it's, you know, overworking, you know, has it become a habit, which is, you know, something to change? And or is it tied to something else that if we don't ever get it met, we might just constantly be feeling in need of and lacking? And so, you know, again, look, these are, these are never light topics, right? On the Yamas and Yamas here, but I think they're really powerful considerations for living because the goal of this whole journey is to think about life intentionally, to think about the, the living intentionally. What choices can we make every day? What are, and in, and in this one, like, what are we hooked on that might not be serving us? How and why are we hooked there? And, you know, what would it mean for us? to get unhooked from excess and to move into a state of brahmacharya of walking with God and intentionally directing our right energy. And I want to share this little piece from her book. As you know, sometimes I share, share directly from Deborah Adele's book. And in the section on brahmacharya, she shares that on a recent trip to India, I met a man named Thakur, who was the first man to bring trekking and other outdoor adventures to that part of the Himalayas. He was a successful businessman living the long hours and in positions of success. He told me, however, that wealthy as he was, he still lived in the home his father had built on the outskirts of the village. The door to this home was only chest high for him, so entering the home required him to bow his head. He said that this simple action of bowing as he entered reminded him of the sacredness of all things. And he spent his evenings and his sleep in peace and ease, ready to bring that same sacredness to his business negotiations the next day. So Brahmacharya, you know, is like this low entrance for us there to remind us to enter each day and each action, each utterance with a sense of holiness rather than indulgence so that our days may be lived in the wonder of sacredness rather than the misery of excess. So, you know, just like this businessman, I mean, he could have built a bigger door, he could have built a bigger house, right? You know, both of those things, he had plenty of the resources to do. But he chose to keep something that would serve as a regular reminder. And he chose something, and, you know, I venture to say, like, it was even a little bit uncomfortable, like having to crouch down in order to get into his house. We think about how many times we walk in and out of our house. Because the very act that not doing it obviously would have gotten clobbered in the head with, you know, um, the, the door jam. And so the very act of it has to be taken from a mindful place. Like it has to be taken from a mindful place. And so what opportunities are there to place things in the course of our day that maybe force us to return to a place of mindfulness? You know, I was recent. Actually, just last night, I was in a yoga class and yeah, Shavasana came. My, everyone's favorite part of the yoga class, and Shavasana came, and I lie down, and my head went off somewhere. It just totally went off for all those of you who think if you meditate long enough, your mind never goes off. It doesn't happen. So you know, my mind goes off, and suddenly I she's calling us out of medit out of um, Shavasana and out of the rest. and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was gone. I was you know, in a mind spin for the entire, and she probably gave us four or five minutes of Shavasana for the entire four or five minutes that I literally did not notice any of the I wasn 't present for any of the period from when we lie down in shavasana to when she was bringing us out of shavasana, and so the fact that our minds will drift off that they will get caught in thought loops or that we will continue down accessing on behaviors or you know things that we access on it 's inevitable that 's going to happen, and so this for this for things for things things calling us to shavasana, the calling us out of shavasana, the lowering of the door jam or perhaps some other things that we place in our day. So the invitation is to think about, you know, what ways, what, what um, stopping points do we have during the day to continually bring us back to mindfulness? So this is today's podcast on Brahmacharya. And if you found this useful, please either rate us on iTunes. That would be fantastic. It's one of the ways that we can be found there. Share it with a friend. Uh, and send me any comments or thoughts that you have about ways that you are thinking about non-excess or walking with God or right ways of directing your own energy and bringing, bringing back, being brought back to the mindfulness of directing your energy. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Wonder Your Way to Brilliant.